Father, we affirm with what we have just sung that the ears of our hearing spiritually are only operable if you miraculously open them to behold your word proclaimed and to understand in light of its truth who we are, who you are, and the way of salvation and to recognize our guilt before a sovereign God and to run to Christ for atonement. Lord, I pray as your word is spoken today that you would open our ears, that you would give us the understanding that your spirit works in the hearts of those he softens, that the soil of their souls might receive the word of the Lord, that the roots of your truth would go deep and find streams of living water and produce in the heart and lives of your people fruit to the glory of your great name, 30, 60, and 100-fold. We thank you as we come to you, Lord, that we come to a God who is sovereign and Savior. We come to the creator and the recreator of every heart who bows low before Jesus Christ, confesses sin and places faith in his work on Calvary alone to provide the justification that is necessary for us to stand holy before an incredible, powerful, awesome, majestic, and righteous God. We thank you, Lord, for gathering your saints in the name of Jesus to worship your name today. We pray that you would equip us, Lord, to be bolder in our witness, more consistent in our confession, more accurate in our explanations, more faithful to the call to live in a manner that's worthy of the saved, redeemed, and forgiven. For those who may not know you in the hearing of your word this day, I pray that you would awaken in them the spark, the seed of faith, that they might turn from their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. Thank you for the whole counsel of your holy scriptures. And I pray that you would add to our understanding more information from the glorious love letter that you have written to us in the pages of your scripture today as we behold your word to the praise of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, what a welcome joy and privilege it is to gather as his people, to behold his word, and to set our attention according to that which he has revealed in the pages of the scriptures. Let us turn our attention to Genesis 43 today and continue in our series, Marking the Providence of God and the Glories of Our Savior and His Salvation Revealed in the Testimony of Joseph, His Brothers, and Jacob and the circumstances surrounding the covenant family, including the crisis of famine. The title of this morning's message is Jacob's Famine. This famine by design had purposes in Jacob's life and by extension his family to draw the family itself to, family, to a family reunion and also to reveal the hearts of many during this time and to continue the work of drawing his people closer to himself, an awareness of their sin, a confession of the same, and a foundation of faithfulness and obedience to Him. We seek this morning in this message to highlight the work of the Spirit, suffering notwithstanding. How did God use a famine for His glory? We'll see some answers to that in our message today, Lord willing. Uh, stand with me as you're able, and let us read the Scriptures together. Behold in your hearing with reverence and fear the Word of God. This is uh, Genesis 43, verses 1 through 25. Here is the immutable, infallible word. Verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Verse 6, Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied. The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What, what we told him is an answer to these questions. Could we have in any way known what he would say, that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, that, then let me bear the blame forever. 
If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present that they took, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, Is it because of the money that was placed in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall on us to make us servants and seize our donkeys? So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Jacob's famine. Let's contrast this to an earlier chapter, 28, as I recall. There, Jacob receives that vision, that angelic visitation from the realms of glory, heavens open, and this staircase stretching between earth and heaven, and these emissaries of God's will and purposes, ascending and descending, promising him that Yahweh, the Lord of the staircase, will make a way to bridge a sinner and a holy God, heaven and earth. God worked in this instance through this miraculous dream to provide promises and assurance and to work on Jacob and to continue to transform him into the called patriarchal father that he was supposed to be. But today, God is doing no less, I submit, yet he's using a different circumstance entirely. Not a glorious dream of angels ascending and descending, but a protracted famine and a crisis of starvation. The life and testimony of Jacob through our text today prompts this question. Is a life-threatening hardship like famine any less of a tool in the hands of the Lord than a glorious angelic dream? Well, I'm sure you would agree with me that I would prefer the second means. That angelic dream is probably much more to our liking, but it is nevertheless undoubtedly the case that God worked just as sovereignly, just as powerfully in this trial, in this famine, in the life of, in the life of Jacob, as he had through a triumphant dream in the past. This seven-year famine has struck the promised land, it would seem, as hard as the rest of the world. And as a result, just in the context here, that first shipment of emergency rations that the brothers had procured in Egypt, it had now been depleted. We don't know exactly how long it lasted, but roughly speaking, it feels contextually maybe a matter of weeks or months, probably not very long. Facing starvation once again then, a return trip to Egypt seems the only way to avoid starving to death in the land of Canaan. But the trip is still more complicated and difficult this time, given the conditions laid down by the, quote, Lord of the land, unbeknownst to the family, the covenant family, this was Joseph, but remember their last visit. Last time they went, he told them, Joseph, they are not to return without their father's youngest and favored son, Benjamin, only one remaining of his beloved wife, Rachel. And to make matters worse and more weird and complicated, 
The money that they had brought with them to pay for that first shipment had mysteriously been placed back in their luggage. What's going on? They have no idea why these circumstances, um, and that's obviously the question that is plaguing the minds of Jacob and the ten remaining sons. What is going on? They feared every probable answer to this question, and thus Jacob's hesitation to send them back, and Judah's and the brothers' insistence that if they go, they better bring their youngest brother. So we can understand, if we put ourselves in their shoes, this sense of uncertainty and fear. They had left Simeon behind, if you recall, uh, and he, the vizier, Joseph, or grand steward, that's the Egyptian word for that, insisted that they leave Simeon as a pledge for their return. Their coming again, according to his terms, would bring Benjamin with them, and then, if he held to his word, Joseph held to his word, they could see Simeon again. So very complicated a set of circumstances that is causing anxiety and stress on levels that maybe these guys have never experienced yet. And there's a big trial, a big test. Will they trust God in spite of all these difficult difficulties and uncertainties? Yet through all of this, God's purposes of something like heart, a spiritual heart surgery, if you will, continue. Why has God done all of this? Why has he arranged the circumstances so he's working on the hearts of the individuals in our story? The uh, hearts of Joseph's brothers we see in our text today grow softer still. It had been 20 years since, at least, since they sold their brother into slavery. But you can see their attitude is changing. They're growing uh, further distant from their sin as they begin to take more steps of repentance. Reuben was featured last time. Now we see uh, Judah as an example of this. They're forced to come to terms, and, and also Jacob, their father, is forced to come to terms with his short-sighted fears. He would soon learn that the covenant promises of God, wrought by his sovereign hand, are reliable and preeminently powerful. The promises of God are stronger than famine. Abraham had to learn that lesson the hard way in Genesis 12, and now Jacob is learning it as well. The promises of God are stronger than famine, stronger than death. Ultimately, the gospel holds out this hope. Just as the famine set the stage for the purposes of God, despite the fears of his grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis 12, so Jacob would witness the glory and grace of God in spite of crisis. Jacob's reluctance in sending Benjamin to Egypt speaks to the frailty of his faith, which is subject to testing internally, in his heart and externally through these events. Prior to receiving the bread of life, the uh, life-saving resources of Egypt, the Spirit is moving along the way. So that in the case of Joseph's brothers, he moves them to humility, confession of sin, repentance, and self-sacrifice. Even as he is moving Jacob to trust the Lord, to provide for the covenant family, and to protect his beloved Benjamin. So that's kind of an overview and context from our vantage point of how the Spirit is moving in spite of these difficult times. On, for the rest of my message, I'd like to focus on three individuals which give a more precise example, illustration of the Spirit's work. So let's use this heading, three examples of the work of the Spirit in and through the hearts of His people. Three examples of the work of the Spirit in and through the hearts of His people. Let's consider first Judah's accountability, verses 1 through 10. Secondly, Jacob's offering, verses 11 through 15. And thirdly, Joseph's hospitality in 16 through 25. That's a way that we could divide our text today, I suggest. So let's consider our first example of the work of the Spirit, evident in and through the heart, in this case of Judah, and his accountability. Notice the first portion of this chapter, 43, is in dialogue format. We have Judah speaking first, we have Israel, Jacob, his father answering, and we have the brothers agreeing or speaking um, as a collective or their voice is represented, represented by that collective pronoun they, and then Judah uh, says, speaks to his father specifically again, and then Israel or Jacob answers. So this back and forth dialogue between sons and father is revealing the situation as far as they understand it and is also setting up a scenario in this relationship for Judah to demonstrate repentance. 
So let's see this trajectory as we read. Verse 1, Now the famine was severe in the land. And if you recall, Jacob had said when they first returned, the end of the last chapter, My son shall not go down with you. They wanted to go back and bring Benjamin with them. They told their dad the situation. But Jacob is afraid. And he's holding his beloved close. He's uh, fearing the loss of the last remaining again. Beloved son, and memories, no doubt, and connection to Rachel, who he still mourns, the beloved bride. His brother, speaking of Joseph, Jacob presumes is dead. He, speaking of Benjamin, is the only one left. Jacob says, if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol, or the place of the dead. So Jacob is resolved to hold his beloved tightly and to not let him return. And so in the meantime, presumably, they've eaten all the rations. What are we going to do? Well, maybe with Dad feels the pressure, after all the resources are gone again, we can have another conversation. That seems to be what happened. Now, the famine was severe in the land, in verse 243, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. And this is where Judah interjects. He says to him, the man, kids, who is the man that Judah is referring to? The man in Egypt that solemnly warned them. Yes, V. Um, Joseph. Joseph, that's correct. Judah said to them, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. This is sort of the first account here of Judah's accountability, if you will, the first record of this. He's reporting to his father the situation, and he's done so accurately. Judah is representing the will of the man of the land, the sovereign, the vizier, the grand steward, the one whom they reported to, the one who holds their life of Simeon in his hands and has demanded the presence of Benjamin on their return. This, of course, as Fiona reminded us, is Joseph, but the rest of his family doesn't know it yet. So here we have highlighted Judah's accountability, taking responsibility and interacting in a way that will serve to benefit the whole family and eventually reunite everyone. Something is changing, and I think we see this more clearly in contrast to the last record of Judah's actions and his character in chapter 38 so, or 37. Turn back there with me if you would. The last we heard of Judah and where his heart was at in some detail is in chapters 37 and 38. Um, in, in 37, this of course is the record of Joseph's dream and how his brothers respond. So when Joseph came to his brothers, verse 23, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And they sat down to eat. Notice the contrast. They're going to sit down to eat again in our chapter. But here it's sort of like a cavalier dismissal. They're taking their brother's life in their hands. They're committing this act of violence and betrayal against their own family member. And they, and they sit down without any fear to enjoy a meal, to celebrate their sin. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And when Judah said to his, then Judah, notice Judah is highlighted here, he said to his brothers, what profit is, is it if we kill our brother and conceal his bro- blood? So carry nothing for the life of Joseph, but only for a little extra coin, he says, I got an idea, verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And then things go as far as the life of Judah is concerned from bad to worse. The next chapter documents the consequential sinful fallout that spreads like a malignant cancer from Joseph, I'm from Judah, to his whole family. It happened at the time, 38.1, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. It's idiomatic language, meaning looking for trouble, you could say, to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. These are unbelieving pagan peoples. 
There's going to be covenant compromise that Judah pursues with them. He saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite there in verse 2, whose name was Shuei, took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son. He calls his name Ur. And as we see, Judah uh, took a wife for his firstborn. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The Lord kills him. Then another Onan, he disobeys the Lord. The Lord kills him. And then Judah withholds a, uh, the promised husband to his daughter Tamar. She gets desperate, pretends to be a prostitute, deceives her father, becomes pregnant with twins by him, and the whole thing just begins to spiral downward. So Judah and his household are just displaying the horrible downward spiral of sinful depravity. But there is grace that the Lord will intervene and do heart surgery, as it were, on the covenant family. He will work in Judah's life, and things will begin to change. We see evidence of the Spirit's work 20 years later in this interaction that Judah has with his father. He is now taking a responsibility in this situation. He's accurately representing the will of the Lord of the land as he gives this report to his dad. And he moves on with sort of an accounting as well. Israel challenges the sons, no doubt frustrated and angry and upset with the way they handled themselves in Egypt. He exclaims in verse 6, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, so Judah and the rest testified to the following. The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and about our kindred, saying, is your, brothers, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we have known that he would say, bring your brother down? You kind of see the Lord working through this dialogue. There's this report of the will of the Lord of the land, and now there's this accounting for how they interacted the last time they were there. In some response to their father's inquiry, Judah, along with his brother, testifies to the specifics of their prior interaction in Egypt. They give an account of their judgment, the exercise of their judgment, and responsibility in the matter. And then we get to Judah again, and the focus on him as he gives a commitment to his father. And this is a striking situation. Verse 8, Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. Verse 9, highlightable uh, verse here. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now re have returned twice. This is similar to Reuben's pledge of his two sons in the prior chapter, but it couldn't be more opposite than the heart of Judah in verse 27 or 37 and 38. The Lord is working on this man, softening his heart. He's changing the revenge, the vengeful, spiteful jealousy that had a murderous and the murderous betrayal of his brother to one of care and concern for the favored, remaining favored son of his father, to the point where he has pledged his own life as surety to provide Benjamin safe return. Reuben had said to his father in 42:37, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down. So we see here, again, two examples among the brothers of moving from taking advantage their own sinful situation to act like Cain and to rise up against their brother in their hatred and their animosity and so forth to a complete change, actually lay down their life or even lay down their son's life uh, for, as a pledge of safety for Benjamin, their father's beloved remaining son. As the dialogue progresses, Judah assumes full responsibility for Benjamin. He pledges himself as surety for Benjamin's safe passage. And do you remember this phrase from the last time we were in Genesis? What is a pledge? 
If the obligation is not fulfilled, the man himself will be the payment. If the obligation is not fulfilled, the man himself will be the payment. This is the terms of covenant that Judah offers of himself in the situation to guarantee that he will guard and protect and return safely to Jacob with Benjamin. If I come back and I don't fulfill my promise, Judah is saying to Jacob, then I myself will be the payment. You know, there are foreshadowings in passages like this, many of them in this case, of a greater pledge to come. We've mentioned it before, it bears repeating. And in this case, it's even, the fulfillment is even more precise in that there would be a son. Judah is the covenant line, by the way. The Messiah would come through Judah, the unlikely son. He's not uh, favored of Jacob in the way Benjamin and Joseph were, but he was favored of the Lord. God in his sovereign mercy and grace had chosen to bring Jesus through the line of Judah. And the heart that Judah expresses to Jacob cannot utterly be fulfilled in his promise. He's a weak person and a sinner. He cannot really offer himself as a pledge and guarantee anything beyond just assuring his father that he will be true to his word. However, there would be a son of Judah to come. And when the obligation of sin before a holy God could not be fulfilled, then the man himself, the son of Judah, would be the pledge, as we mentioned last time. The heart of Judah in expressing to his father that I myself will be the surety for the salvation or the safety of Benjamin is a picture of what Jesus Christ, the son of Judah to come, would be. He himself would be the cost of our salvation, of our safe passage, even through death itself, unto glory. The man himself will be the pledge. So it's amazing to see these gospel foreshadowings in the text here even as it's awesome to see how God is softening the heart of Judah. His accountability, his change of heart and attitude, his movement from vengeance to self-sacrifice is a work of the Holy Spirit alone. The Lord himself is working on the heart. After two decades of plenty of time for a root of bitterness to only grow deeper, you see that Jacob still favors Benjamin. It's pretty obvious that he's his favorite. You know, he's willing to risk the lives of 10 other sons, but he's like, nope, this one's super precious to me. They'd have as much reason now as they did then to resent their father and to hate their brother, but they do not. Why? Because their hearts are changing. God is working in them. Through this report, through this accountability, through this commitment, this pledge of his life in the place of another, Judah is being softened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Judah's accountability speaks to the power of the Lord to work through a crisis like famine, to change his people more into the image of Christ. This is an example of the work of the Spirit in and through the hearts of one of his called ones, Judah. Judah had so many problems. His family was in such a state of disarray. There was so much dysfunction in his household, but nevertheless, the grace of the Lord was stronger than all of this. The promises of God were more powerful than Judah's sin. And this is why he began to repent, because the Lord was moving on his soul. The second example of the work of the Spirit in the hearts of his people, we can see in the life of, and the, uh, basically the heart uh, or the uh, attitude of Jacob. Verses 11 through 15, I've labeled this portion Jacob's offering. It seems that this is the stance, the posture that he takes in facing this dilemma. He's going to do so by presenting an offering. There's three parts to this offering. There's choice fruits, double the money, and Benjamin himself. Verse 11. Then their father Israel, another word, uh, name for Jacob, of course. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some bags of the choice fruit of the land, in your, uh, take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. By the way, we saw that the Ishmaelite traders had things like this on their way to Egypt for sale. It was understood that these things were valued down south, and so this would be an offering, um, a peace offering, basically, to send along to the Lord of the land to demonstrate that they come not to take advantage of him, but basically to submit and to seek his favor. Verse 12, take double the money with you, carry it back with you. 
carried the money back with you that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And then it continues. This present, these choice fruits that Jacob prepares, is uh, there's, it's quite a striking illustration of something. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings 17. We'll touch on that in a moment. Jacob's offering in the first application is to the vizier. That would be the grand steward of Egypt, the lord of the land, unbeknownst to him, Joseph. So he's preparing three things. He's preparing choice fruits and double the money and his own son, Benjamin, as an offering to the lord of the land. That's the first application. However, I suggest that in this, if Jacob is taking this step, uh, or is he, if he is taking, making this decision and bringing this offering in obedience and faith to the Lord, and I think we see evidence of this, then this is also an act of worship. That is to say that what is demanded, required, or expedient for us things that are required of us in our day-to-day affairs as we interact in in the world, if we trust that God's sovereign hand is involved, if we do so, like Jacob, in a posture of faith, if we crucify our fear and take a step the way He is leading us, then those things that are required of us along the way can be sanctified as an offering and as worship to the Lord. Jacob's offering in the first instance is to Joseph, but if he did so in faith, it can be sanctified. It could have been sanctified, and I believe it was, as an offering to the Lord. So, Lord, I'm sending these first fruits along in faith that you will use them, these choice fruits. I'm sending double the money according to your law and so forth. In first, um, so let us behold from a cross-reference a principle that, some, that has come up more than once in Scripture of an offering to the Lord in time of great crisis. Um, sometimes the Lord puts us to a pretty extreme test, even though we have very little uh, to go uh, to offer to the Lord. Sometimes in faith, He requires it of us. Another example of this, 1 Kings 17, verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, this is Elijah, Rise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. The Lord has commanded a widow to feed Elijah. Well, she must have plenty, right? So he rose and went to Zarephath. By the way, there's a famine, just like in the days of Jacob. There's a famine in the land at this time as well, prophesied uh, by Elijah. When they came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah, what a a pitiful and sad situation. A widow doesn't have a husband. She has a little one in her charge, a son. She has nothing to show uh, for all her efforts of gathering sticks, all these are good for us making a fire. There's no food to be found in the land. She's down to her last handful of flour, flour and just a tiny bit of oil. And so resolved to submit herself to the fate of starvation, so to make this meal, and then they will die. A pitiful scenario. Elijah said to her, do not fear. He's calling her to faith in spite of the crisis in which she, that she is facing. He says, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In order for her to act, to obey in right heart, she has to believe the word of the Lord through the prophet. And the test is extreme. She went and did as Elijah said, verse 15. And she and her household, she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoke to Elijah. As we go back to our text today, you know, 
The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has no intrinsic need of our offering. The Lord, so what is the purpose? You know, we see this pitiful juxtaposition in Jacob's case as well. Go to the Lord of the land. Bring him a little balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Where in the world are they going to find these things? Got to search far, far and wide for the, the last little bit compared to the storehouses of plenty that Joseph has. What is this? It is nothing. It's a pitiful offering in light of the great storehouses of Joseph. This pitiful juxtaposition of Joseph's storehouses and the gifts that the brothers bring to secure his favor. It's like the offering that we bring to the Lord, saints. Why do we bring to the Lord from our lack when he owns everything and we have almost nothing? Why is the widow celebrated in the gospel as bringing a greater offering, uh, relatively speaking, than the rich who sought to give? And she of her two mites did so secretly. The rich clanged their golden pieces and their silver into the coffers to be seen of men. It is in part it is primarily because the offering it's more for the giver than it is for the receiver. An offering under these kinds of conditions is a, it's basically a state it's a statement of faith. It's necessary for the giver's sake. It's a pledge of dependency, submission, and faith. So bringing these choice fruits to the Lord of the land, though he did not need them, was a posture of faith on behalf of Jacob, and it was a statement of intention for the covenant family. And it spoke to the man, the Lord of the land, that we are dependent on you. We submit to you, and we give you an offering from our lack in faith that you might supply our needs. And this was the same principle that was operative in the case of the widow and of the prophet. And the Lord has the same intentions in times of difficulty in our life to do what? To move us, his people, to a softer heart. So that in spite of our lack, in spite of the pain and the difficulty we might be going through, in spite of the privation and the little resources that we might have, that when we still go to the Lord in faith with what little remains, we do so uh, we do so and as, uh, in obedience, and as we take that step, we grow in our knowledge of dependency and our posture of submission and our faith upon the Lord. Where would the widow place her faith for living? Would it be in that pitiful handful of flour and that oil? Or would it be in the word of the Lord through his servant Elijah? Where would Jacob and the brothers and his sons Find hope for the future. Would it be in the last of their uh, store, last of their remaining provisions, or would it be in the hope that the Lord of the land would grant them the food that they required? So Jacob, in offering these choice fruits, is demonstrating a faith that is growing in him. I suggest, and also a dependency and submission to the Lord who has provided, who has uh, storehouses that he has secured through his servant, again, unbeknownst to Jacob, but Joseph, raised up, filled with the Holy Spirit by the wisdom of the Lord to save the covenant family, and he has oriented these circumstances such that the, uh, Jacob is recognizing his dependency upon the Lord through this means, and thus he will submit to him in faith and therefore offer the last of their resources as a gift to secure the favor of the Lord of the land. Jacob's offering also includes double the money. He says, verse 12, take back the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Um, <laughs> this might not be the first application that comes to you, but it did strike me as I was studying how Jacob is not a socialist. Socialism basically presupposes that we are entitled to the profits of others because of great need. Each according... Uh, by his means to each according to his need makes logical sense. And of course, much of the policies that are pursued in our day presuppose these kinds of things. But if you look underneath that kind of logic, because God has delegated and ordered property according to his law, what really is expressed in the heart of socialism is that we, for lack or for uh, some reason, are justified in breaking God's law. 
In Psalm 119, 127, the psalmist we studied last week said it this way, his commitment similar to Jacob's. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. From Jacob's perspective, this money was not theirs. It was given in exchange. And he wasn't sure why it was returned in the sacks, but he was going to err on the side of God's law. He would return the money that, was rightful, that rightfully belonged to the Lord of the land in exchange for their first shipment. He loved the law of the Lord more than the bread and the corn or whatever it was, the grain that was promised in Egypt. He loved the law of the Lord above gold and fine gold. Therefore, the psalmist says, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Now, it might seem as just a throwaway detail, but I suggest that uh, Jacob sending this money back under these conditions testified to his love of the law of the Lord. The poverty, the lack, the starvation, and the famine did not justify dishonesty. But he testified in this act that he would serve the Lord even at great cost to himself. And the law of the Lord was not to be broken just because they were feeling a crisis. Let us learn from Jacob. You know, we don't think of Jacob as a great example of much, but there are times when we see in the record his integrity and his commitment to the Lord. And this would be one of them. He was going to send his sons back to do the right thing. He was going to demonstrate honest dealings, correcting even perhaps the mistakes of others at his own expense. Integrity is tested in times of want. Crisis has a way of bringing out the true metal or character of an individual. And though Jacob you know, revealed fear under pressure, the Lord moved him to faith, but he also revealed some integrity under pressure as well. And his offerings spoke to this. He loved the Lord. He regarded his law above even his own livelihood and recognized that he was not entitled to the property of others because of, just because there was a famine. So Jacob's offering as a testimony to his dependence on the Lord and his strength of character in this regard. And then thirdly, here's the real change. He uh, basically complies and sends in faith Jacob, I'm sorry, Benjamin. Jacob sends Benjamin uh, as the third element of this offering. Verse 13, take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Here for the first time, Jacob is resolved to risk the offering of his beloved son in faith. He, in this act of repentance and the growing, softening heart, could look to the testimony of his grandfather, could he not? Abraham was called to do the same kind of thing in Genesis 22. And what testimony did Jacob have of God's faithfulness in spite of this crisis that his grandfather faced? In Genesis 22, Abraham arose early, verse 3, in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he rose and went to the place of which God had told him on the third day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abram, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The faith of Abraham that the Lord would somehow work in this situation, even though he knows he's facing the offering of his own son. Verse 9, They came to the place of which the Lord had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. Did he kill him, kids? Did Abraham kill Isaac? No. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear the Lord, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Likewise, Jacob, when he finally lets Benjamin go and submits himself to the mercy of God and his son, entrusts himself and his beloved to, the God, to God Almighty to grant mercy, and is willing to even say in faith, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He is growing in his faith as well. 
and he is trusting the God who has the power to raise from the dead. Maybe we won't, uh, without time to further expand, in your own time this week, you could go back to that, 1 Kings 17, and you will see that the famine and then this excruciating offering required in faith that the Lord provide, and then the Lord answering with his provision that the that test of the widow's faith was not over yet. The very next, in the rest of the chapter, records the untimely death of her little one, of her boy. And the prophet hears about it and what happens. Well, the power of God is further demonstrated, not just to fill her jars with oil and her bins with flour, but also to bring life back from the dead. We would never know the glory and the promise of resurrection if it wasn't for the trial that God brought. And of course, this is preeminently pictured in Jesus Christ. No darker day in all of human history than when the rocks themselves cried out and the heavens broke forth in weeping as the Son of Man was crucified on Calvary. But this set the stage for the glories of God to be revealed when the Judah to come was resurrected on the third day. It is necessary that the, a son be given that the covenant family might be saved. And this picture is revealed in foreshadow over and over again. It was necessary that the son Benjamin be given that the covenant family be saved. It was necessary that Simeon be given as pledge and then they returned that the covenant family might be saved. It was necessary that Joseph be sold into slavery that the covenant family might be saved. And, and this, uh, this theme comes up time and again, the life of Abraham as well. But in each case, the sons were received back but there would be a son. I remember listening to an apologist recount a discussion that he had with a, a Muslim. And he went all the way back to the story of Abraham and Isaac because there is some common ground in those religious, in those texts with the Muslim and the Christian. We both affirm the Old Testament to some degree. And so he talked about how Abraham took his son uh, and there's some argument there, you know, between the face, whether it was, as I understand it, Isaac or Ishmael. But suffice it to say, what he, what he told him next was the gospel. He said, though the son was spared in that instance, there would be another father who would lead another son up a hill, bearing the instrument of his own death upon his back. And on that hill, historians sometimes, many historians believe it was Mount Moriah itself, stood the cross of Calvary. And upon that cross, this time, the father did not spare the son. But the knife, as it were, that spear that pierced his side, landed upon the flesh, and the son was slaughtered. And this is why there is hope for the covenant family all the way back here. This is why they are spared judgment. This is why the sons are received. This is why Isaac was spared and Benjamin was spared and so forth, because there would come a son, according to the covenant line, who would not be spared, who would take death as the punishment for their sin in their place and would be slaughtered that they might feast in reconciliation. This was a matter of faith in the Old Testament in what was to come. But for us, we have the vantage point of history recognizing it has occurred. So it's a matter of faith that Jesus has come for us. And he is the one that these stories look to that would fulfill these pictures to the uttermost. Jacob's offering foreshadows a sufficient offering to come. Jesus Christ in our place, the son who was slaughtered to save the covenant family. Are you in him today? If you are, you're part of the covenant family. And if you're part of the covenant family, it's because Jesus died for you. And you believe that with all your heart, have turned from your sins and confessed your faith in him. Final point today, three examples of the work of the spirit in the hearts of his people. Judah's accountability, Jacob's offering, and finally, Joseph's hospitality. Here we primarily see the Lord working through Joseph's hospitality. His heart has been in a good place. The Lord has been working through his son. He's been filled with the spirit. He's been acting in obedience. And here is no exception. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal to make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. Joseph's hospitality begins with something of a sacrifice, you might say. The last recorded animal slaughter we might note is again in chapter 37. After the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, 
What do they do to deceive their father? Well, they slaughter an animal. The same language is used, but the application is totally different. In this case, it's a false atonement. It's trusting in their own ideas and in a pagan sacrifice and that blood to cover their sins. It's a wicked idol worship. That act of false atonement and smearing the blood of an unacceptable sacrifice to trick their father? No. But, there would, but in fact, the shedding of blood was necessary in order for table fellowship to be secured. This animal that was slaughtered here could be seen as something of a picture. Without the slaughter of the Passover lamb, there was no feast of Passover. Uh, it required the shedding of blood for the people to be reconciled to the Lord. As we have mentioned, without the slaughter of Jesus Christ and the very elements of that act on Calvary that are pictured in communion, there's no table fellowship, there's no reconciliation, there's no friendship, there's no sitting down at peace with the Lord of all the lambs. And so that slaughter was necessary. And here we see that picture as well, that theme, that the slaughter of the animal made ready the table of reconciliation that would soon unfold between the estranged brothers and Joseph, the Lord of the land. So God is using, I suggest, even Joseph's hospitality to reinforce these pictures. The slaughter of the animal, in this instance, the cost of reconciliation. An animal is killed, yet Simeon is returned and Benjamin is spared. There's a, a weighty invitation. Uh, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. But we've mentioned this before in verse 18. How is the invitation to meal received? Well, they all oh, excited. Oh, sweet, we get to party with the uh, vizier. No, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and said, it's because of the money which was placed in our sacks for the first time. We see the grace of guilt working in the lives, that was the title of our last message, of Joseph's brothers. Table fellowship with the Lord of the land is something they take very seriously, not lightly. They know they don't deserve to be there. And in fact, they deserve judgment, not favor. So in this reality of their own sin, an invitation to the Lord of the land's table is something that they are very nervous about. And we should have a similar weight when we come before the Lord's table. Not that we come, not that we fear that we are welcome, but we should remember to fear the Lord that our welcome was purchased by the slaughter of a substitute sacrifice, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we come to the table recognizing the only reason we deserve to be there is not of anything because of us, but a man was killed so that we might enter into friendship and fellowship with the Lord. Then that feast, that table takes on a whole new meaning. You know, in our culture, we've lost the idea of feasting. Feasting biblically is not an excuse to just, you know, entertain each other, have a good time, make some memories, or maybe forget your problems as you drown them with libations and alcohol. Feasting has lost its meaning. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah type reverie anymore for most people. But feasting in the scripture is entirely different. It's the joy of friendship and fellowship, recognizing the high cost that was paid. In times of famine, a feast is expensive. Now, we live in a day where we take for granted the provisions because we have relative wealth and ease. But in times of famine, a perspective is helpful to show us that we don't deserve and like the cost of this feast is expensive and that would weigh heavy on us. And then uh, we recognize furthermore in the biblical concept of a covenant meal that there is a slaughter and there, there's a solemn exchange of vows. There's a pledge of one's commitment one to another. And this is the kind of weight that the brothers realize as they approach the table of the Lord of the land. So they, they went up to the steward of Joseph's house. They spoke to him at the door and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. They're talking about this money situation and our money in full weight. We have brought it back again. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Please hear our appeal. We come humbly and honestly, and we make no pretension. We don't take this lightly. We realize we, it might look bad, but this is where we stand. So they take this very seriously. And as they sit down, we can only imagine the wide-eyed amazement and grace, gratefulness based on grace alone that floods the hearts of the brothers 
as this table is spread before them. We'll read more of that in future weeks. We, likewise, are always and only welcome, as I mentioned, based on the slaughter of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb blood as a necessary precondition for our table fellowship. This passage that, we've, that I've just set aside for today, it closes with the assurance of peace. And this is really interesting as well. 23, he, so this is Joseph's servant, replies to the brothers, assuaging their fears, assuring them peace with the Lord of the land. Don't worry. You are in his favor. He says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put the treasure back in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he sent Simeon out to them. This is a gospel evangelist. And isn't it interesting that he's also an Egyptian, presumably servant of Joseph. Joseph's influence, testifying to Yahweh in the truth of the one true God, has probably saved this man. And he has an understanding of what's going on in some ways beyond what the covenant family does. Peace to you, he says. Don't be afraid. You're God. And the God of your father has put the treasure back. Uh, don't you realize that the most powerful, amazing uh, force in all the universe this personal interaction based on promises and covenant is watching over you. You have no need to fear. There is assurance of peace that is granted to the brothers by a reference to their God and the God of their fathers. And it's given to them by an unlikely evangelist, the servant of Joseph in his house. What is our assurance of peace? And who is the gospel minister that brings it? The Lord might use any number of unlikely situations in our lives to remind us of these things. Parents, sometimes it's your children. The childlike faith of the little one who asks to pray in the evening and prays a prayer that's too audacious for you to even think about because it seems bigger than what you have faith for God to do. That happens all the time in my house. But in these situations, um, our, my little one is testifying that I should have more faith in the power of God to answer even in times of great want and crisis. There's something valuable and precious about the childlike faith and the promises of God that just simply believes them and reassures us in that, and, might, and the Lord might use to reassure us in times of doubt or lack of faith. An unlikely messenger, an evangelist, bringing to us a gospel perspective once again if we're growing weary in our own lack of faith. Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Let's close in Romans 5. This assurance of peace reaches its apex and fulfillment in Romans 5. Here, the gospel fills in with substance all that was foreshadowed of old. We'll back up to 4 and read verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. This, by the way, is speaking to Abraham's faith. It will be counted to us who believed in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the slaughter of the covenant son necessary for washing away of our sins and to justify us, place us in right standing with the Lord. This is what Paul speaks of. And then he draws the connection to this and our faith in the same and the assurance in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured out, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we see New Testament affirmation of these principles at work in the story of Jacob and his sons. We see greater and more precise fulfillment still of this assurance of peace, we have peace with God because we have been justified by faith. Faith in what? Faith that the covenant son was crucified in our place. And faith that God will raise us with him since God has raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And why did he have to die? He died for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. And on this basis, 
we sit down at table fellowship with the Lord of all the lands, the Lord of all the lords, the King of all kings, recognizing because what is represented at the communion table itself that we have been justified by faith. And as a result of what Christ has done and our dependency on it, we have peace with God in spite of our past. Redemption is accomplished and realized in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, the Judah, the Joseph, the Jacob to come, if you will. Let us close in prayer, thanking the Lord for these glorious reassurances. Father, we thank you for the power of your holy word to reinforce to our souls through so many different means, even the glorious account of these circumstances that you sovereignly arranged in Jacob and Joseph and all of the brothers' lives. We thank you, Lord, that these can be used to strengthen our faith and our resolve and give us a stronger and more effective witness in our day. I pray, Lord, that you would use your scriptures to convict us if there are sins, Lord, where we have considered your power too small. Lord, if we've taken lightly your promises, if we've turned to other things to reassure us and thus indulged idols, I pray that we would repent and turn from them and that we would place our faith in you and you alone. Grant us through the proclamation of your word this day the assurance of peace because we are justified by faith and the true sovereign and savior who died in our place as a sufficient penalty for our sin. May he be praised and honored and glorified in fruit from this message and our lives following. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.